if you found yourself like a little unsettled to hear that Jesus would talk like that, do you know why that is? Because he's not like us, right? It's not what he would say. He wouldn't act that way. He's really different, and that's going to come into play with what we're talking about today. Now, let me ask you a question. Um, have you ever had somebody tell you that you look like somebody famous? You know, they say everybody's got like a celebrity look-alike, right? You ever, have, if they've told you that you look like somebody famous, your reaction to that is probably depends on who they tell you you look like. I, I used to get Tom Cruise, and, and now I get Derek Zoolander. This uh, week, the number one movie in the country is uh, Jungle Book Remake. And um, in it, Christopher Walken does the voice for King Louis the Ape. And King Louis the Ape sings a song, and it's the famous song that if you probably heard in your childhood, it's this, the same song. And you, if you imagine in your head, you can almost hear it. And, and he, he says the words, I want to be, I, 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 I want to be like you, you, ooh, ooh, you know. I want to talk like you. I want to, you'll see it's true, someone like me. Can you almost hear it, can't you? Could, can learn to be like someone like you. So, so here's another, the next question. Who would you like to look like? Okay, you could probably put in some names there, right? Who would you like to look like? When Paul wrote to the Philippians, a bunch of believers in, in, in the town of Philippi, among, among the key themes he had was kind of a source of where his contentment comes from, regardless what his circumstances are. And he, and he talks a lot about being somebody who can rejoice. You know what? I'd like to learn that secret, the secret of contentment. I want to know how you can have joy in the middle of this. And, and when he talks about it, one of the key things he's going to say is, all right, this is one of the ways this is going to happen. The more you start to look like somebody else, the more you're going to feel joy and contentment. Philippians chapter 2, if you have a Bible, I invite you to take a look. Philippians chapter 2. Rick took us through the first couple of verses last week. We're going to look at verse 3 and following. And this is basically what Paul the Apostle is going to say. And he, this is not, I suppose, a surprise. He's going to lift up Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the one who came to earth to rescue us. And he's going to say, here's the deal. The more you resemble Jesus, the more your joy is going to be stronger. The more you, you kind of take on what he is like, the, the, the greater your level of contentment is going to be. Now, the question is, okay, how in the world do we do that? How do I begin to look like Jesus? How do I resemble Jesus? And he's going to spell some things out. He's going to talk about some things we need to remove. He's going to talk about some things we need to replace that with. And he's going to talk about the result from that. In Philippians 3. So you just heard it read to you. That was Philippians 2. You just heard them read Philippians 2, this section to you. But look again at verse 3 3 through 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then in verse 5 he says, Your attitude should look like somebody else. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, in order to do that, there's something that we, he's going to say, here, here's what you got to get out of the way in order to start looking like him. And a couple things he says there are in verses three and four. He says, 
do nothing out of, he's got two phrases, selfish ambition and vain conceit. Now, these both have something to do with how I position myself in regards to other people. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition is where I advance myself before others. Vain conceit is that I view myself above others. And he says, do nothing out of those two motivations. Advancing myself above others or viewing myself above others. And I want to tell you something. Okay, now we talk about real life here. This is not theory, this is real life. I look at that and I say, if I do nothing, if I did nothing out of selfish ambition, which is to advance myself before others, if I did nothing out of vacancy, which is viewing myself above others, I will tell you that I would need to remove about 90% of what I do in my life. And I'm not kidding. The vast majority of what I do and choose to do is from one of, of one of those motives. You know why? I'm taught to do it. My whole world tells me to do it. I need to get higher GPA than everybody else so I can get into a college that other people can't get into, so I can get jobs they can't get, so I can, so I can earn more money, so I can do more things, so I can have more stuff. Everything in a capitalistic society is based about advancing your agenda above others. Everything is about seeing yourself. We're told, you know, you can do anything. Do, you're, you're capable of anything. Rise above the pack. Do, do what needs to be done in order for that to be accomplished. Don King, the legendary promoter, he, he, he was famously quoted saying, I never cease to amaze myself. I say this humbly. So in order to do that, it means I've had to change something that's at the very core of I am, who I am. I want, because I want to get others to serve me. I, come on, Right? That's how you advance. If you can get other people, get to the place where other people cut your lawn and other people prepare your food in the restaurant and other people get out of your way. That's the goal, isn't it? When, when I say I need to get my agenda done because my agenda is superior because I'm smarter than everybody else. I know how this is supposed to work. And so I manipulate my world in order to accomplish my superior self or my superior agenda. And so the focus is always on myself, which is why perhaps the scripture says something like this in Galatians 6.3, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Well, it's pretty much all of us. Everything, all the focus is on self. We have a word in our culture now that we didn't have a generation ago. It's a selfie. Of the pictures you have in your camera right now, what percentage of them have you yourself in them compared to other people in them? It's the world we live in. And now, so, so God's gonna come in and he's gonna say, do you want, would you like to have, you wanna know the secret of contentment in the world? You wanna know... What, what gives you, what, what will result in joy? Well, you know what? Here's in the mix. Do nothing out of those motivations. Remove them from your character and replace them with something, which he's going to explain in, by holding up his, the, the Savior Jesus. Verse five says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, the attitude means your mindset, your whole focus, 
not just be your behavior, but how you think about things, how you value things. And then it describes Jesus when it, as an example. It says, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. There's an attitude that resembles Jesus. Okay, so, you want, so start looking like Jesus, and you're going to start seeing a difference in what your experience is. And when you look at Jesus and you say, okay, I want, I, I, I want to be like you, well, what are you going to find? Here's what you're going to find. You're going to find the Son of God who did something that we cannot fathom. And, and th- there is a key doctrine in all of Scripture contained right in this passage today. They call it the doctrine of the kenosis. Kenosis from the Greek word kenoo. It's used here in verse 7. When it says, but in my translation, it says, but he made himself nothing. That is the Greek word kanoo, which means to empty yourself of something. Jesus did an act where he emptied himself of something. One of the best phrases I've heard of what he emptied himself of is he emptied himself of the independent use of his divine attributes. The capacity to do it, now he still could use them, but he deferred to his father to do them. He emptied himself of the independent use of that which makes him almighty God. His omniscience and his omnipotence and his omnipresence, all of those things, he kind of set aside the independent use of those to accomplish something. Now, just just as an aside, notice this, I just want you to see this. In this passage is one of the most, most clear and concise uh, statements that Jesus Christ is God because it uses these phrases, who being in very nature with God and uses the phrase did not consider equality with God. Both those phrases are, the, the original readers of this letter would absolutely know something. As soon as he said, being in very nature, God, everybody understood He's, he, he's saying that this is the representation, fullness. This is God. And when he used the word equality with God, that word gets you stoned in, this day, in that age. Anybody who says they position themselves as equal of God is calling themselves God. This statement is saying Jesus Christ has been, forever was, is, and will continue to be God. He is fully God. And this is what makes it so profound. That, that God did something to empty himself. He had to climb into human flesh. He had to limit, self-limit his capacities as the Almighty just to accomplish the incarnation. But it didn't stop there. It, and what that means is that he, had to, he restrained himself on what he could do at any given time. When Jesus asks questions, when he turns around, when he self-limits about his, showing weakness as a man, it doesn't mean he, does, he's not, he was not, not capable of doing something. In fact, he said, don't you know, I could call angels, boom, right now, take myself off the cross. I, I could do that right now. He still had the capacity to do it. It was the independent use of those things. I once got a chance to play basketball, a pickup basketball game with two guys who were NBA players. And, you know, there, it, was just, it was just an awesome experience. And one of them was on my team and one of them was on the other team. And I got to play with these guys and I'm, and I got the ball, and I'm trying to drive on a guy. And at one time, I scored over a guy 6'7", who played small forward in the NBA. And then I had another, the other guy was on my team was, was, was a uh, point guard, and, and, and we were in the backcourt. He and I were in the backcourt, and he's dribbling, passing to me. He's waiting for me to cut. I'm like, 
this is just awesome. And after a while, I started to think, you know, I wonder if they do any, like, you know, open tryouts. Because, you know, I'm, kind of, I'm hanging with these guys. And when we got done playing, somebody said, hey, you guys just do a little one-on-one. And these guys played one-on-one against each other. And it was like something I'd never seen in my life. It was like what we were playing wasn't really basketball. I don't know what it was. They started playing basketball. And I realized what they did. Now, they were playing but they were self-limiting in order to put themselves in a position where everybody could enjoy an experience together. When the time came to show what they really had, I realized they don't breathe the same kind of air I breathe. It's just different. Jesus did that. He self-limited for a purpose. But he did. it wasn't just the incarnation. It wasn't just to become a man because look what else it says. He said, Verse 7 says, but he made himself nothing. That's the kenosis. He emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's these levels to which Jesus did this. He didn't just become a human. He became a servant type of human. A servant human who was so much the nature of a servant that he would be willing to sacrifice anything, death, even the most humiliating of deaths, the most public of deaths in that era. That's what Jesus did. He made himself a servant. And and there's a really important, do you see in verse seven where it says, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. That is a huge phrase about what we, you and I are called on to do. If we're gonna look like him, the very nature of a servant has to do with his identity. It wasn't just a token act of serving. It wasn't just an occasional act. Because servanthood, as God defines it, and as Jesus lived it, being a servant is, is not something you do. It's someone you are. Write that down. I need to write that down. What went to a restaurant recently... Went to one last night, but they, they tend to say the same thing. And they'll walk up, and some very nice person will smile at you, and then they'll introduce yourself and say, hello, I'm so-and-so, and I will be your server today. They will say, I will be your server. You know what they don't say? Today, I will be your servant. There's a difference. A server is someone who's got a role at a time. They do some stuff. They serve. A servant is someone who fills an identity and I had this happen once where we, I was at a restaurant and we were lingering for a while and we checked out, but then I thought, you know, I think I'd like to get a refill and I saw the, the server walk by and I said, oh, hey, we'd already, already paid everything. I said, would it be okay? Can I just get a, one more refill? And she looked over at me and she said, I'm sorry, I'm off. Well, could I have my thing back to when I gave you the tip? <laughs> no, I didn't say because, and, and that's the point. You clock in, you serve. When you clock out, you're off. Because who do you think I am? Your slave. And that's the nature that Jesus took. It was not just something he did. And you compare that. Okay, now this beat me up this week, so hang on, because this is, I got to tell you, this is where I live. Compare that with what we could call strategic serving, which is, oh, I know I'm supposed to be a servant. Okay, and so 
I need, I need to do some stuff. And so what I'll do is I'll kind of inventory all the things that need done, and then I'll be selective, and I'll find the ones that fit my schedule. And I'll, and I'll serve there. I'll, I'll find the ones that are most interesting to me, or I'll find the ones that I can do, and then I can be done with. I can shoot in and I can shoot out, and I can feel really good about myself and say, look at that, look at the servant I am. Strategic serving. That's what I typically want to do. I want ones that don't cost too much. I want ones that got, have a quota. And when I fulfill the quota, I can be done and I can stop and I can keep the scoreboard. I can say, right now, in the category of, of, of serving, I've, I'm plus two on the giveaway takeaway scale, right? I've done two more than I've received, so I'm good. I'm leading the league in, in I'm, I'm comparing. You, you know where you see this? You see this when you have a new baby. So when you have a new baby and the baby gets up in the night and if you are trying to be judicious about it, the parents will say, you know what? Let's take turns getting the baby, right? And so the baby will cry, and it's like, okay, you know, and then, you, and then so when you wake up the next time, it, it, you're half zoned, and you go, okay, wait, wait, whose turn is it? I did last time. Oh, no, I didn't do last time. And then I'll fake it, that I can't hear the baby. <laughs> and maybe the maternal instinct will kick in, and she'll forget about whose turn it is because she's the mom. <laughs> and I'll just lay there until I, until other, I got, got an elbow where it's like, it's your turn. And so I've got, I, raising children and having babies in the house, got a very clear line about who's doing what, how many times, how many dirty diapers have you changed, how many have I changed. Let, look, that's the arrangement around here. Why? Because I'm looking for strategic serving. I want to do just enough to appease whatever has to be appeased, and then let's get on with my own life, which is vain conceit and selfish ambition, what I want to do. Now, instead of that, Jesus took the identity of a servant. It meant that he, be, he served simply because it's what he does. It's who he is. And, he's, and, and Paul says, the secret I'm talking to you in, about it involves this. You lay aside the, the natural tendencies and you take on a whole new identity where you view your world and you say, my identity here is a servant. If a dog is in the backyard and it's barking, we don't say, wow, that's fantastic barking you're doing. We don't, we don't say, oh, oh, thanks. And you know why that's good enough barking for today? Because you've done some barking and it's all done. You know, you know why a dog barks? Because that's what dogs do. Why do servants serve? The nature of a servant serves just because that's the identity they have. That's, why, that's what's behind the story Jesus said had in, in Luke 17, which is kind of this little weird story that I'm, it makes me a little uncomfortable because it just sounds so uncaring. When he said, suppose one of you had, had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he came in from the field, oh, come along now and, and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. There's an identity there. Now, you know why that bothers me? Because it seems so uncaring. And I don't want to be treated like that. And here's what I learned. That the truest test of whether a person is a true servant or not is how they react when they're treated like one. 
How do you react when you're treated like a servant? That will tell you to what degree it's part of your nature or not. And in order for that to happen, that requires some of the most unnatural reprogramming of our hearts. I'm going to tell you this. That in order for this to happen, you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't just reform yourself into changing your nature. You have to have somebody else's nature come into your soul, cleanse it, and reshape it. And that's what Jesus Christ offers to do. When we do that, we begin to resemble him because that's what he did. Now, how did he go about that? Verse 8 says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself, the internal, and the external as he became obedient. He placed himself in a position where there was an internal shift that resulted in external actions. There was no quota and there was no limit. He became obedient to death, and do you notice what it says? Even death on a cross. Because he was a servant, it didn't matter what was asked of him. He placed himself in that position. And we do a disservice, can I just say this, to our children when we say that our culture tells us that we are told to advance our children, to leverage their position, to put them in a position where they are always ahead of other people. And we don't put them in a position where we say, you just serve because it's what we do. It's who we are. Can I tell you that... Um, If you want to see this lived out, you came to the right place. And every time I'm away, like I was last weekend, I'm reminded of the the transformation that has happened and is happening when I'm here. Because you're sitting around a whole lot of people who have put this into practice. We, We have got, we have servant, Jesus touched servanthood abounds around here. You're sitting in an auditorium that was cleaned this week by people who you may not ever meet. You walk into our restrooms and they were clean. And there are people who come at least once a month and they sacrifice and they work and they serve. There are people who are serving our children right as we speak. There are people who come in here early and make coffee. There are people who come out and do yard work around here. It's us. We do it. And you know we have got, had people who've been doing that for years and years and years, and I'm always a little nervous, like, when are you going to wake up and go, wow, I'm not really getting paid for this? But when you take on the nature of a servant, somebody begins to reshape how they look at their world. And they, and they, and they see others not just as equal, but as actually better than themselves. That's what Romans 13, uh, 13, 12 is talking about when it says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So, and this is what it looks like. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and honor one another above yourselves. There are people here this morning who will count offerings when we're done. There are people who will leave groups. There are people who will put together cell meetings. They'll do that because they honor others above themselves. It's become part of who they are. And you know what? You look at those people, and guess who they start looking like? You say, you know, you remind me of someone when you do this. 
think you remind me of the Son of God who humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. And then something happens. Here's what God does. He rewards that kind of behavior. You don't serve in order to gain reward, but as a result of it, God who is loves and cares and does and bestows rewards, he does that kind of thing. And he did it with his own son. Verses 9 to 11 is one of the greatest compilation statements in all of Scripture that talks about the preeminence of the risen, all-powerful Jesus Christ. That because of what he did when he humbled himself, because he took on the nature of a servant, this is what's true of him. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every, in heaven and on earth and under the, tongue, uh, under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, It is a cornerstone statement about the rightful position of the one who loves us. And understand, he's still a servant behind it. He still lowers himself to be aware and concerned about where you live and where I live, to be involved in what's going on in our lives, to care about these little minuscule carbon-based units on a little speck in the middle of the cosmos that he commands. He still cares, not so much that he, and not only does he care, he intervenes and he draws near and he offers relationship and he serves you and me. It is still his nature. And yet, it is true of him, and it will be true, that the Father is going to exalt that name so that every knee will eventually bow to him and say, Acknowledge whether they do it willingly or not, that it's true. That he is the Lord of all. The invitation is given for you and I to willfully acknowledge that while we can be spared by his grace and his mercy. Where where our faith is is energized so that by faith we we put our trust in him and we are rescued by him and we are brought into fellowship with him. Here's what the invitation is then for us. And this is going to come into play with what Paul says throughout this to the Philippians. You want a life that has fullness of joy? You really want a life where you get the secret of contentment? Okay, let's work, let, let God do some work on what's going on inside you and who you are. And where that starts is that first, you bow in humility to him. And then, you adopt his humility in how you view your world around you. In just a little bit, you're going to get released from here to go into a world where immediately it'll want to kick in to say, why are these people in my way? Why are they bothering me? Why are, they, why, why, why are people interrupting my, my day or getting in the way of my agenda? And all that stuff will flood back in. And, and God, God invites us to say, allow his presence in your life to remove that mentality. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than ourselves. And let God be the one who elevates, collectively elevates us into positions where we make impact for him. And let God be the one who elevates you, whether now or eventually he will do so, because because this is what what it says. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, 1 Peter 5, because God opposes the proud, but look what he does. Oh, he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, 
that he may lift you up in due time. What would it look like for you when you go back to school tomorrow, when you go back to your workplace, when you go into your home, you go into your neighborhood with those people who you kind of look down on, you really annoy you, they feel, you feel superior to them. Oh, I know you do, come on. What would it look like for you to say, I'm going to take on the, the nature of a servant with them? I'm going to give it to them, put them ahead of me, simply because the character of Jesus is bubbling up within me. What does that look like for you? This week, find a way to do it. And somebody somewhere is going to look at you and go, huh, you remind me of somebody. Pray with me.